Yeah, so I think podcast started to become a thing probably within the last around that time. Yeah, yeah. and they've sort of now everybody has a podcast, but everybody. Yeah, and you look eagerly at the number of clicks or what? Oh yeah. yeah. Well, I did it first, and then when they kind of plateaued, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. just like, "It'll grow. We'll see." <laughs> yeah. um, Welcome to Mox Punk Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. This is part two of Joe and Misha's conversation with Dr. Bert Sackman, where they'll explore what drew Dr. Sackman into neuroscience and the path he's taken developing tools to look at ion channels and synapses. So I wonder if we could um, we could take a step back. Um, what was it that initially drew you to neuroscience to begin with? I mean. You started out as a physicist and somebody interested in engineering, but uh, engineering for yeah, sure, right? And but um, you got interested in biology. I mean, yes, it was uh, uh, probably you don't remember this, but there was a um, uh, a discipline called cybernetics, and this uh, made it sound as if you can understand biological phenomena using uh, basically the, the black box approach, you know, looking at the input, looking at the output, and then draw up a, a model uh, that will create this behavior. And this was a Max Planck director by the name of Reichardt. Uh, he has this uh, model of, uh, of the Reichardt detector. I got hold of that and I thought that's what I want to do. But then I joined uh, a hardcore neurophysiology lab, and then I thought, you know, this is all a bit simplified, and I really want to go down to, to, you know, I want to measure what is going on in, in, in the brain, not making models. Meaning, like you, you were reading the output of, say, sensory neurons, and you were thinking, this isn't really telling me how the system is working at a. No, no. I mean, the optomotor response is you put a uh, an insect on a on a, on a ball and show it different patterns and it will react in a certain uh, certain uh, way. And Reichert came up, Reichert and Hauptstein came up with a model which involves a delay and autocorrelation function, an, a formation of an autocorrelation. And this will give you what's called a movement detection. And my friend, uh, uh, Axel Boss is still working on it, and they are close to solving it if they get there <laughs> after 30 years. You know? But at the time, I realized we don't have the tools. Also, I didn't want to work on an insect. Uh, I joined the lab of, of Kreuzfeld and found there are equally interesting things, sticking electrodes and listen to what's happening when the, when the cat... Uh, See something. That was your first experience with like real yeah right yeah, yeah. yeah. Then, Jubel uh, David Jubel came along, and he was very inspiring. So this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. But then uh, I realized, and at the same time, it was the time when computers, which you could program in Fortran, were available—not these big machines, but you know, sort of something uh, sizable. Something that would fit in a reasonable room. Right. You could put it in a bathroom, yeah. maybe. <laughs> something like that. And uh, then I meant that's a combination of careful measurements and 
uh, making modeling. This is what seemed to be very attractive. However, again, I realized working on the retina that uh, the uh, important point in network is the synapse. Okay? It's all very nice to record action potentials all over the place. But it, doesn't, it doesn't give you the answer. So you have to understand the synapse. So I, I uh, uh, went to a conference where Bernard Katz was giving a lecture. And said, That's exactly what I want to do. Uh, learn about the synapse. So I was accepted. And this was a time when uh, when uh, noise analysis, I don't know whether you know about this, but it was a big thing. Only physiologists uh, would understand it. The biochemists always said, oh. Membrane noise? Membrane noise, yeah. yeah. I mean, they wouldn't pay any attention. We were all excited. Uh, and the estimates of the Cindy Channel, con and, and the big, let's say, aim was not to extract it from noise by making uh, certain assumptions, but to measure it directly. To actually measure yeah. the conductances mm -hmm. at single yeah. ion channels. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so it happened that Erwin Neer, whom I had met in, uh, in Munich, also moved to, had moved to uh, Göttingen. He was working on planar bilayers, with chromicidin, beautiful step, wonderful. But uh, the chromicide is something very different. It's a, it's a dimer that, uh, uh, you know, uh, hooks up and then creates a channel. So uh, I had learned in Katz's lab, first of all, how exciting it was to look at the ion channels. And secondly, uh, I had learned to, to clean a muscle fiber take of the uh, nerve terminal without damaging the estragolin receptor. We had a clean wow. membrane. This was uh, my first project. So when I came to Göttingen, uh, Irving came up and said, Let, let's have a go. You know, I mean, we'll, we'll do this by exercise measurements. Uh, so uh, he did the electronics. I did the you know, cleaning procedure and optimizing. Uh, and then we worked for three or four years. And this is the advantage of the Max Planck Society you could work for you know, three or four years. Not forever, but you were not under pressure. You could do you could try this and that and this and that. And so just to clarify, the, the thing that you and Nair are trying to nail down is how to actually record from, from single ion channels. Yes. Yeah. And characterize the different properties of different yes. ion channels. This was the, yeah. I mean, I was mostly interested in the acetylcholine receptor because this is the receptor, it's the neuromuscular junction, and the neuromuscular junction was the synapse, the prototypical synapse, where almost everything was found out. So what was missing is uh, the acetylcholine receptor sen sensitivity. And so I was uh, primarily interested in synaptic receptors, in, in acetylcholine receptors. Uh, whereas Irvin was more interested in uh, voltage activated channels because of his uh, PhD thesis, which was in, on potassium channels. But it turned out that um, the acetylcholine receptor channels are relatively past large currents, so it's much easier. Uh, it was much easier at the time to record from those. And I stuck to the acetylcholine receptor uh, until uh, I thought 
everything was, uh, how to say, found out what an electrophysiologist could do. So, uh, and then, by chance, I must say, we discovered a um, recording configuration, which is called, you must know this, a uh, yeah, whole, whole cell, you know. Uh, and this we did all in, in the cultures, but heart cells are very small and they you don't have to you know, put a put a sharp pipette, but it's very easy to get uh, membrane potential recordings. So I thought that's the way to go to go back to the system to the nervous system and then I spent a few years uh, to optimize this with collaborators for slices. And then we had a 10 year slice um, uh, period where we discovered a number of things that you could not have discovered otherwise, like, I think you showed me the backpropagating edge potential. No, who showed it to me? Backpropagating edge potential, spike time dependent plasticity, the target cell specificity of uh, short term release, and quite a number of then the thing that uh, is for understanding circuits, it's the coincidence detection by in inputs at different parts of the, mm -hmm. of the dendrite. Okay, this was all very nice. We worked out as, as good as we, we could. But then I thought, yeah, maybe this is all not, not so right. We have to show this in vivo. So you went from cultures to slices, wholesale yes. in slices, and... Now onto living people. animals, mm -hmm. yeah. Because I, I realized that uh, in slices you can characterize small circuit, local circuit. But you know, column is two hundred micrometer, uh, and two hundred micrometer of width and two millimeter long. And if you want to uh, look at the traffic within the column, it's impossible to do that. So this kind of brings up an interesting philosophical point about how one approaches science. Um, you started out looking at, at sort of gross level um, neurophysiology in Kreutzfeldt's lab. Yeah, and yeah. You said, okay, no, we have to get down to the synapse. Right. And so with Bernard Katz, you started looking at the neuromuscular junction. Mm -hmm. And you said, okay, we have to go even smaller. Yes. We have to get exactly ion that. channels. <laughs> yeah. And then once you, so- Well, I, I went even further, you know, uh, then this was a time of molecular biology, and I quickly realized that with the Xenopus uh, uh, expression system, you could work, uh, work, work out a few basic things about the Einstein, for example, what are the amino acid sequences that form the ion channel wall. And fortunately... Individual pieces of the ion channel, basically. Yes. Yeah. You call this domains. You know? mm -hmm. I mean, let's channel forming domain or whatever, or binding domains. So uh, once working on this, I reported this to some physical society in England, uh, how you can do this. And then I got a call by Professor Numa from Japan and said, can we collaborate? Now you must know who Numa was a big hero at the time, because he's a molecular biologist who had cloned almost every uh, uh, channel, coding uh, protein sequence. And this was a wonderful time because we could spend the time on characterizing channel and then phoning Professor Numa. Could we please have a point mutation 
here and here and here. So you could see what happened when you perturbed him. In right. Mm -hmm. So, I, I, we, I mean, we figured out two things, which I'm still proud. It's a channel-forming domain. It's called the M2 segment. And the other thing is there is a developmental switch in the type of estracolin receptor. Uh, at the neuromuscular junction, you have an embryonic form and you have an adult form, and the switch happens around P postnatal 8. Uh, and the first thing was to figure out what, uh, what is, uh, you know, what is the subunit composition. So we got five clones from NUMA, injected all of them, and sure enough, two, uh, two channel types came up, yeah. big ones and small ones. And now it was only a question of combinatorics to find out which is the adult channel and which is the, the uh, uh, embryonic channel. So it's called, we call this the gamma-epsilon uh, subunit switch, switch uh, which I thought at the time could be a, a mechanism underlying plasticity, and there are some indications that this happens in the in the central nervous system, but it's not a major, I think it's not a major mechanism. But at that time, I got very involved in that, because um, um, I thought, you know, this is a different, uh, it's a molecular handle at plastic changes. Uh, but uh, the evidence for glutamate is sparse. There are switches, but I don't think they have big, big effects. So you, so when you developed the patch plant technique, um, you were kind of down at the lowest level uh, mm -hmm. scale-wise that you could get, but suddenly it started to open up possibilities for going bigger. So, you know, you went from... Right. That's you know, exactly it went what in the opposite mean. direction. So what was the... What, what switched in your head that made you think, okay, now that we have this basic subunit characterized, I feel comfortable going for the whole thing. Well, I had two choices, you know. Either I could go into crystallization, mm -hmm. which is a tough, difficult, yeah. very difficult, and many, many failures. But since I, you know, I thought, well, what can I do? Either we go into crystallization, but there was a complete layman, I would have uh, already had made plans to join a lab, for crystallization. Um, and the other thing was, you know, look at circuits. What do uh, cooperating channels to a circuit? And I think this is what, uh, what uh, I found in the end. In, uh, it was also easier to get postdocs because at that time, crystallization had not the best reputation. You, know? you had to try this and this and this and this and this. And this. So, I, this is the process of like creating uh, protein crystals mm -hmm. so that you could analyze the structure right. of them mm -hmm. using mm -hmm. X-rays, basically. Mm -hmm. Because I was in Heidelberg, and there was an X-ray department, and they would have done all the X-ray with us, but the crystallization was, or still is, the crystallization of membrane proteins is a really tough uh, job, and you know the 1988. Nobel Prize went to three Germans who were the first to crystallize a membrane protein uh, with, you know, uh, with, how to say, lots of frustration, but it worked. Yeah. And now, I mean, even to this day, a, a new um, X-ray crystallography 
paper is always kind of a big deal. Like there's a recent amperoceptor one in in science. And, um, well, I wanted to know what uh, whether the educated guesses that you had made on the basis of point mutations and looking at the functions are true. You know, so uh, fortunately they are. They are uh, not you know low resolution uh, X-ray structures now that basically confirm the M that the M2 segment is uh, transmembrane segment. Forming the channel, you know. Mm -hmm. Are there animal model systems that have genetic channelopathies that um, are useful for, for approaching this way? I mean, it seems like a particular target for certain types of disease might be to do exactly this type of characterization of, of ion channels in Say mouse models yes. of, of well, there, there is a human disease, but it's very, very rare where the switch between the two subtypes doesn't work or is not working. And they are mild, not really, how to say, impaired, but they are very sensitive to full to uh, anesthetics. So, uh, we obviously looked at that. We even built a mouse model, which we characterized to as far as we, we could. And uh, only under, let's say, let's say, stress, they are impaired. And with respect to humans, if I remember correctly, maybe there are a thousand cases in the uh, So this was a sort of a side side mm -hmm. track, but. Um, I wasn't really interested in, 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 in other receptors until I met Peter Seeburg, who uh, had cloned uh, the glutamate receptor channel. They did the same spiel again, but I got bored. You know, same uh, expressing, look in subunit composition, make a point mutation here, point mutation here. So I, I got sort of bored. <laughs> so you started to move towards the big scale? Back, yeah. First the cell. Yeah. So the, uh, I mean, if, if we kind of want to look at that as a bigger picture, the, the thing you got a Nobel Prize for with uh, plant being everything, it's, it's made quite a big uh, impression, obviously, for, um, I don't know. Well, you, you have to but be careful. The, the quotation is for characterizing uh, right. uh, single not. I mean, we developed that technique in, with a very specific purpose. You yes. Know? Yeah. Very specific purpose, and then moved on. Right. But the technique. I mean, the technique mm. itself has, was, has been was, adapted, uh, uh, you know, by mm. by many people, and uh, you know, all all of us uh, neuroscientists at one point or another uh, have been exposed to it. Even. Um, do you see experiment going on in our lab right now? Using yeah. It, mm. Exactly. Um, do you feel that, uh, yeah, so even though, you know, plenty of people use pad clamping still, do you feel like it's getting replaced by something? Do you think it's still relevant if it, is this still a good technique? Well, it depends uh, on uh, what you want to know, you know, if you want to, let's take circuits. You can't understand the circuit unless you know synaptic transmission and with light so far, you're blind. The light is blind to synaptic transmission, although it starts, what I have seen today, where you can look at individual uh, spines lighting, uh, lighting up. But this is, I think it's the beginning, but 
if you want to do connections and you don't know about the transmission properties, you'll always be in the dark. It's, you can put as much light as you want, you're not going to figure it out. <laughs> That's a good quote for the, for the imaging people. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, no, it's very good yeah. at, you know, for looking at spikes and, um, or at, at nets, but then you want to know what is going on inside this net. And for this, the synapse is the, the important uh, uh, pro uh, structure to look at. And I haven't seen a die telling me synaptic uh, signals, except that it starts, I was very impressed today, uh, where you can look at individual um, spines lighting up and then, um, you know, start to con reconstruct a, a synaptic input map. And this is superior to what we can do with the, with the recording from the SOMA. But there are other things. I told you that we, we had uh, discovered what's called the backpropagating edge potential and coincidence detection. And there the light is just not fast enough. In order to do the interesting things, you want to do time-sensitive measurements in the millisecond range, and this is not what the light so mm -hmm. far is going to give you. It will probably change with better probes, but right now uh, we are um, we have a t we are in a different time range. So it's sort of a transitionary period where the, the technology is allowing you to get a different perspective on the sample, but it lacks certain characteristics like temporal resolution, yes. things like that. Yeah, and also, as I said, PSPs. And how do you discriminate a, 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 an EPSP with a, from an IPSP? You know, yeah. you have an EPSP followed by an IPSP. I would like to see this uh, measured with light. <laughs> so far, it hasn't happened. <laughs> yeah, you need some kind of uh, other types of indicators. I think. Right. I think so. Yeah, That's, it is probably going to happen at some stage, but right now, maybe I'm not, you know, informed, well informed, but um, right now. Not having the synaptic uh, uh, connections um, is a severe impairment. And, you know, you want to know, is the synapse facilitating or depressing? That's even f even farther away. We just measured it. Very simple. Because so the network is changing its uh, state permanently, depending on short-term uh, short plasticity. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, maybe I'm getting a bit ide ideological, but uh, otherwise I would have used it. But <laughs> I want to know how the synapse work. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for okay. joining us today. This was really yeah. fun. Yeah. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at NeuroPodcast. Let's say you have a hundred thousand clicks. What then? What happens then? You then, then we sell then we advertising <laughs> and we monetize and we make millions. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> That's the point. To yeah. make millions. Yeah. Right. So, what do you do with the millions? Uh, make more podcasts, I guess. I think.